0: It is a sultry July evening in 1690. The air hangs heavy with the smell of spices, shit and chocolate. We're in Mexico City, the Mexico of colonial Spain. The sun is just setting below the bell towers and the steeples. They cast long shadows into the streets. Looking up at the cloistered walls of the Santa Paula, the sun is retreating back from the imposing arched entrance. The ethereal choir of nuns expands into the brief pauses in the cacophony of the bustling city. Inside the cloister, a nun stands on the balcony overlooking the courtyard, the fabric of her habit concealing her figure entirely. We can see her hands holding what appears to be a letter, a letter that would prompt her to write her most famous work, response to the most illustrious poet Sor Philatia. If we could see Sor Juana's face, what would we see? Disbelief? Fear? Or perhaps pleasure as she begins to understand the letter and the implications of her private correspondence, published and circulated to the clergy and to those with power and influence in Spanish Mexican society? You are listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for over 500 years of feminist history and philosophy. In this episode, we are listening to excerpts from a letter written by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, the 17th century poet, philosopher, playwright, composer, and nun. If you enjoy this episode, please donate using the Buy Me a Copy" link in the show notes or on my website, feralculturelab.com. All donations help me to hire voice actors for this project. Excerpts in this episode are read by Paula Pussell. Oh. The choral track in this episode is a composition by Sor Juana, Madre la de los Primores, Mother of the Beauties. It is performed by the LA Camerata, directed by Marilyn Winkle. A link to their site is also in the show notes. Sor Juana was born just outside of Mexico City in 1648. She was the illegitimate child of a Spanish captain and a Criola woman. Despite being illegitimate, Sor Juana's early years were spent in relative comfort at her family's hacienda, which now houses the Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Museum. Sor Juana was a prodigy. At eight, she composed a poem on the Eucharist. At 13, she had mastered Greek logic and was teaching Latin to children.
1: I say that, before I was three years old, my mother sent an older sister of mine to learn to read in one of the primary schools for girls called Friends. And led by affection and mischief, I followed after her. And seeing that she was being taught a lesson, I was so set ablaze by the desire to know how to read, that in the belief I was deceiving her, I told the teacher my mother wanted her to give me a lesson too. She did not believe it because it was not believable. But to go along with the joke, she taught me. I continued to go, and she continued to teach me, in earnest now, because with experience, she realized the truth.
0: At 16, Sor Juana moves to Mexico City. She is brilliant and musically talented, a valuable lady-in-waiting at the Viceroy's court. The Vicerine pays special attention to Sor Juana, and tutors her, encouraging her studies as well as her musical talent. Five years later, after turning down several marriage proposals, Sor Juana decides to enter a convent so she can focus on her studies, initially joining an order of barefoot Carmelite nuns, but leaving within months in favor of a more liberal order.
1: I entered the convent, although I knew the situation had certain characteristics. I speak of secondary qualities, not formal ones incompatible with my character. But considering the total antipathy I had toward matrimony, the convent was the least disproportionate and most honorable decision I could make to provide the certainty I desired for my salvation. And the first, and in the end the most important, obstacle to overcome was to relinquish all the minor defects in my character, such as wanting to live alone and not wanting any obligatory occupation that would limit the freedom of my studies, or the noise of a community that would interfere with the tranquil silence of my books.
0: Along with God, disease, slavery, and genocide, the Spaniards would also bring their own brand of misogyny to the Americas. Like in much of Europe, Sor Juana's career options would have been limited to wife, whore, or nun. Sor Juana would spend the rest of her life cloistered at the convent of Santa Paula, in the Order of St. Geronimo. She continued her studies in science, music, and philosophy, and, supported by the patronage of the Viceroy and Vicerine, and other prominent figures in colonial Mexican society, became a well-known philosopher, poet, and playwright, earning her the epithets The Phoenix of Mexico and The Tenth Muse. But, for a woman to draw attention to herself is to set oneself up for ridicule, criticism, and censure.
1: Writing has never been by my own volition, but at the behest of others. For I could truthfully say to them, Ye ha ye compelled me. A truth I will not deny. One, because it is widely known, and two, because even if used against me, God has favored me with a great love of the truth. Is that ever since the first light of reason struck me, My inclination toward letters has been so strong and powerful that the reprimands of others, I have had many, or my own reflections, I have engaged in more than a few, have not sufficed to make me abandon this natural impulse that God placed in me. His Majesty knows why and to what end, and He knows I have asked Him to dim the light of my understanding, leaving only enough for me to obey His law, For anything else is too much in a woman, according to some. There are even those who say it does harm.
0: A brilliant and opinionated nun, one who has powerful political allies, was seen as an existential threat by the patriarchal church. At the end of the 17th century, the Catholic Church had a firm grip on political power in New Spain, which they asserted with the oppressive tactics of the Mexican Inquisition an extension of the Spanish Inquisition, which punished essentially the same people for the same crimes in the New World as in the old. Kicking the hornet's nest of the Holy Office was a dangerous act, particularly for a woman, and a woman whose views were widely influential, which is exactly what Sor Juana did in 1690 in her Athenagoric letter, at the height of the Mexican Inquisition, when burning at the stake was still a very real threat. If you are interested in learning more about the writers in the She Speaks Volume series, sign up for the newsletter at feralculturelab.com. The monthly newsletter has additional biographical information and articles exploring the philosophy of the writers, as well as updates on other upcoming lab productions. On Holy Thursday in 1650 at the Royal Chapel in Lisbon, Father Antonio de Vieira, a widely celebrated and influential Christian orator, delivered a sermon on one of Christ's edicts on love. To interpret the act of Christ is quite obviously speculative, and often caused long-running theosophical debates. Forty years later, protected from the sultry heat of a Mexican afternoon in the cool walls of her cloister, Sor Juana shares her criticism of Father Vieira's sermon to a small gathering of academics. She believes the Father has misinterpreted Christ's command of love for humanity, and that Christ intended us to love for our own sake, and not for the return of love. After her talk, her close confidant, the Bishop of Puebla, asks her to write her thoughts down. Now this is all speculation. Despite what others might think, certainly more educated minds who have studied Sor Juana more closely than I have, it is my feeling that the bishop was a jealous and manipulative man who intentionally betrayed Sor Juana and set her up for punishment at best and quite possibly a painful death at worst. Having written her thoughts down and sent them in a letter to the bishop, he, without her permission, had them printed and widely circulated as the Athenagoric letter. Then, to add insult, he writes her a letter back under a false name, as a fellow nun, Sor admonishing her behavior, cautioning her to stop writing, and to take up activities more suitable to a nun, like praying, asking for forgiveness, and meditating on the original sin of being a woman.
1: Who would have doubted, having witnessed such general approbation, that I sailed before the wind across calm seas amid the laurels of widespread acclaim. But our Lord God knows that it has not been so. He knows how from amongst the blossoms of this very acclaim emerged such a number of aroused vipers, hissing their emulation and in their persecution that one could not count them. The most noxious, those who most deeply wounded me have not been those who persecuted me with open loathing and malice, but rather those who in loving me and desiring my well-being have mortified and tormented me more than those others with abhorrence. The publication of the Athenagoric letter had created
0: division, fear, and suspicions within the colonial new Spanish arm of the church. Sor Juana found herself isolated where she had once been celebrated. There seems to be no doubt that Sor Juana knew the true identity of Sor Folotia and who had published her letter. But when she replies to the letter, she addresses it to Sor Folotia. A surface reading of the letter seems to indicate supplication and respect, in addition to a rather clear denouncement of the systemic misogyny within the church. I can't help but detect sarcasm and a note of irony.
1: My most illustrious senora, dear lady, it has not been my will, my poor health, or my justifiable apprehension that, for so many days, delayed my response. How could I write, considering that at my first step, my clumsy pen encountered two obstructions in its path? The first, and for me the most uncompromising, is to know how to reply to your most learned, most prudent, most holy, and most loving letter. For I recall when St. Thomas, the angelic doctor of scholasticism, was asked about his silence regarding his teacher Albertus Magnus, he replied that he had not spoken because he knew no words worthy of Albertus. With so much greater reason, must not I too be silent? Not like the saint, out of humility, but because in reality I know nothing I can say that is worthy of you. The second obstruction is to know how to express my appreciation for a favor so unexpected as extreme, for having my scribblings printed a gift so immeasurable as to surpass my most ambitious aspirations.
0: In her response to Sor Felatia, the bishop,
1: Sor Juana does
0: not take the view that her writing itself is responsible for the backlash she experiences, but that it is the way of society to crucify those who we also adore. One need only to look at the covers of magazines to know this is true.
1: Often effigies of the winds and of fame are placed as decorations up high on churches, and to protect them from the birds, they are covered with barbs. This seems like a defense. Yet it is only one of their necessary qualities, for whoever is exalted cannot stand without being punctured by such barbs. Up there the wind's grudges blow. Up there you find the severity of the elements. Up there, lining strikes with angry vengeance. Up there, you find the target for stones and arrows. Oh, unhappy heights, exposed to so many dangers. Oh, effigies of the heights, how they set you up as targets for envy and as objects for rejection. Any eminence whatsoever whether it be of rank or nobility or wealth or beauty or knowledge, suffers this hardship. Still, intelligence characterizes the kind of celebrities who feel the sting most.
0: She appears to equate her situation with Christ, a comparison that may have been seen as blasphemous, but nonetheless, there is truth in it.
1: When the soldiers mocked, taunted, and amused themselves with our Lord Jesus Christ. They brought him an old purple cloak and a hollow staff and a crown of thorns to crown him as a comic king. Now then, the staff and the purple cloak were insulting, but not painful. Why is the crown alone that causes pain? It is not enough that, like the other insignias, it should be a sign of scorn and ignominy, since those were the soldiers' goals? No, because Christ's holy head and his divine mind were the warehouse of wisdom. And in this world, it is not enough that a wise mind be ridiculed. Rather, it must also be hurt and treated roughly. A head that is a treasury of wisdom should not expect any other crown than one of thorns. Sorvana is particularly
0: aware that her being a woman is no small part of the repercussions from the Athenagoric letter. Throughout her letter, she asserts that the inherent misogyny within the church
1: is hypocritical and misguided. The illustrious Dr. Arce, professor of scripture, eminent for his virtue and learning, in his Studioso Bibliorum, he raises this question. Is it legitimate for women to dedicate themselves to the study of Holy Scripture and its interpretation? And he offers many judgments of saints that argue against this, in particular the statement of the apostle, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, etc. Then he offers other judgments, including one by the same apostle in Titus. The age women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Teachers of good things, with interpretations of the Holy Fathers. And finally, he prudently resolves that giving public lectures from a professor's chair and preaching from a pulpit are not legitimate for women, but that studying, writing, and teaching privately not only are legitimate, but very advantageous and useful. It is obvious that this does not apply to all women, but only to those whom God has favored with special virtue and prudence, who are mature and erudite, and have the necessary talent and requisites for so sacred an occupation. And this is not true only for women, who are considered to be so incompetent, but for men as well, who for the simple fact of being men, Think they are wise.
0: She is speaking in her own defense to say that she has not transgressed the opinions of even the most virtuous and fervent Catholics. She names numerous examples of women who have been writers, teachers, and philosophers within the Church and in antiquity.
1: If I turn to the Gentiles, I first encounter the Sibyls, chosen by God to prophesy the principal mysteries of our faith, in verses so learned and elegant, they enthrall our admiration. and find a woman like Minerva, daughter of the foremost god Jupiter, and mistress of all the knowledge of Athens, worshipped as goddess of the sciences. I find PalArgentaria, who helped Lucan, her husband, write the great Pharsalia. I find the daughter of the divine Tiresias, more learned than her father. I find Zenobia, queen of the Palmyrenes, as wise as she was valiant. Arete, the most learned daughter of Aristippus. Nicostrata, creative in Latin letters and extremely erudite in Greek. Aspasia of Miletus, who taught philosophy and rhetoric and was a tutor of the philosopher Pericles. Hypatia, who taught astronomy and studied for so many years in Alexandria. Leontium, a Greek woman who wrote arguments countering the philosopher Theophrastus, which convinced him. Giusea, Corina, Cornelia. In short, all the great number of women who deserved fame, whether as Greeks, Muses, or pythonesses. for all of them were simply learned women considered and celebrated and also venerated as such in antiquity.
0: These passages, like the City of Ladies, are important for the history and culture of women, for here we find a catalog of our own history, our own myths, and something more important, a reflection of ourselves and the world around us, representations of women outside of the male gaze.
1: Oh, how much harm could be averted in our republic, If older women were as learned as Leta, and knew how to teach as St. Paul and my father St. Jerome advised, since they do not, and given the extreme idleness in which our unfortunate women are left, if some parents wish to give their daughters more instruction than usual, Necessity and the lack of learned older women obliges them to have male tutors teach their daughters how to read, write, count, play an instrument and other skills, which results in a good amount of harm, as we see every day in lamentable examples of wayward associations. For over time, with close dealings and communication, what was thought impossible tends to become simple. For this reason, many parents choose to leave their daughters unlettered and uneducated rather than expose them to so notable a danger as familiarity with men, which could be avoided if there were learned older women as St. Paul desires, and instruction would be handed down from one female to another as occurs on the teaching of needlework and other customary skills. For misuse is not a blame of art, but rather of the evil teacher who perverts the arts, making them the snare of the devil. And this occurs in all arts and sciences. And if the evil is attributed to the fact that a woman employs them, we have seen how many have done so in a praiseworthy fashion. What then is the evil in my being a woman? The
0: synthesis of this letter is that Sor Juana lays out an account of her life, her God-given drive to study, learn, and to write, and to ask of Sor Volotea, whom she knows to be the bishop, what the manner of her supplication is to be. She offers that her writing should be subject to approval.
1: If I ever write again, my scribbling will always find its way to the heaven of your holy feet and the certainty of her correction for I have no other jewel with which to pay you. And in the lament of Seneca, he who has once bestowed benefices, has committed himself to continue. And so you must be repaid out of your own munificence, for only in this way shall I with dignity be freed from debt and avoid that the words of that same Seneca come to pass it is contemptible to be surpassed in benefices. Or in his gallantry, the generous creditor gives the poor debtor the means to repay his debt.
0: However, approval of her writing was not the price exacted on Sor Juana for the audacity of speaking her mind, for the crime of being a woman. It was, in fact, that she never write again that she not engage in study or any activity not befitting a nun. And she never did. Some may feel it was weak of Sor Juana to give in, to bend to the church. For surely, if this were a Hollywood film, Sor Juana would have defended herself, continued writing, and gone head-to-head with the Holy See. And we would shortly thereafter be treated to a grisly but poetic scene of a woman tied to a stake in a public square and burned to death. But this is real life, and real people rarely subject themselves to a fatal and painful torture if there is any reasonable alternative. Another light snuffed out by the darkness that is the church. And yet there are no museums to the Bishop of Puebla, to Father Vieira, or to many other male leaders who were intent on protecting the boys' club. Their ideas were not worthy of preservation. But Sor Juana, the Phoenix of Mexico always rises. In the next episode of She Speaks Volumes, we are listening to passages from A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. Subscribe to She Speaks Volumes to be notified when it's posted. To learn more about She Speaks Volumes and the other podcasts and films I am producing, please visit feralculturelab.com.